Well, we're back uh, for another segment, believe it or not, with the Grassy Knoll. Beyond the Grassy Knoll, as we call it these days, and we have with us uh, Ev Halliford. Uh, you have heard him before. He's been on once. He's also been on with um, Gordon Comstock, and that's uh, those are shows apparently that resonated very well with all you folks. Um, I'm not going to. I'm not saying this demeaningly, but you know, one of the things that we do, and that Gordon does too, is we have shows on with people who are, you know, just like ourselves, and that's not a bad thing. Um, I think that's a re that's something, like I said, resonates with folks um, because you know, listeners want to know there's people out there just like they. And um, the last time uh, Ed was on with us, uh, we talked about his remembrances of his dad and. Uh, and that got some kind of response, there's no doubt about it, a very positive one and a very emotional one. And uh, Ev also struck a chord when he was on Gordon's show not too long ago, and he's back with us today um, from the great city of New York. Uh, Ev, thanks for coming back with us, and, and how's things going by you? Well, it's raining right now, but other than that, it's <laughs> chilling and raining. I think that's typical New uh, spring weather in New York. You know, no one can ever, ever uh, feel badly for us down here in Florida, and I understand that. But what they don't understand is sometimes I get tired of squinting and sweating. <laughs> and I would rain. Uh, we are in uh, very dire straits. This usually happens every year, and this is no different. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess it must be a pain in the rear end. <laughs> I remember how it was up, up in New York, but... Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I trade off a couple of weeks of weather for you in, in a heartbeat. So, <laughs> at any rate, uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, we exchanged emails, and you posited some very interesting uh, ideas uh, to which you're going to speak uh, tonight. Um, do you want to um, at least give uh, the listeners and myself some kind of thesis statement, if you would? Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be uh, pedantic here, but... Um, give us an outline of um, what you'd like to cover, uh, you'd perhaps in this hour, in, in a second. Uh, we'll see how far we go. Well, I've often heard, you know, these um, kind of biblical critics, you know, criticize the theory of evolution, you know, from the six-day New Earth uh, perspective. And what I wanted to do was something completely different from what these other people had done is actually sit down and discuss the scientific problems with the theory of evolution and then uh, take that and, and kind of do a periscope back and look well, where these ideas came from. Mm -hmm. and, and tying in a little bit to what I talked about before on Gordon's program and a little bit on, on yours about uh, the power structure of those people at the top, in, uh, in a way of self-justification for why, you know, they've risen to the top of the heap to come up with a scientific theory to justify, you know, their uh, blue blood attitude towards, you know, themselves and their derision and, and, uh, and antagonism towards the unwashed masses at the bottom. Let me ask you this also, uh, and of course I don't know, and so I can answer this cold, and that's the best way to do it, and that is, did you find necessarily that one of the um, um, byproducts of um, the whole idea of evolution, as forwarded, uh, and I guess I'm giving this away a little bit, but you know, I, I think Darwin was a twit. I think Erasmus, his grandfather, probably had was the guy who got things going. But that this all turns also into, um, as H. U. Wells would say, and, and admonish Francis Galton that you know, 
forget selective breeding. We want to slay the hindmost. Um, and that was very prevalent in uh, United States society and probably was abrogated or at least delayed by World War II and now I think is rearing its head very surreptitiously under the banner right now of bioethics. Long question, I know. What I'm asking you is, is depopulation part of this whole idea? Of course it is. And this goes back to Plato's Republic when he yeah. talked about only breeding the best people. And those that were the inferiors, you know, basically refusing to allow them to breed and ultimately killing them all. And, and, and if you go back and you read all the writings of all of these so-called Darwinists, uh, you step back from them, and the background of all of this is their desire to kill anyone that they consider inferior and to be removed from this kind of Christian ethic, you know, of every individual being created in the image of God, therefore having a value and worth and, you know, mm -hmm. the wholesale slaughter of, you know, of all of these images of God from a Christian perspective would be a, a great moral atrocity. But in, but in the theory of Darwinism with its survival of the fittest doctrine, this is a, a reflection of the way nature is, in fact, there enhancing the species by killing off the undesirables. They're participating in this uh, process of nature of mm -hmm. purifying the race. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the echoes back to uh, Nazism and everything else, you know, people consider Hitler to be uh, an aberration. Mm -hmm. But in fact, he was mainstream uh, anthropology. His ideas were the norm being taught in universities all around the world at the time. And especially going back to the 1900s, you know. And, um, uh, you know, like I said, I didn't know if you would resonate with that. Uh, not because, you know, we just, we didn't, you know, do a lot of brushing of, of notes. And I think that's good because I, I can talk to you as, as others would off the cuff and find out, you know, I don't know if you really are thinking the way I am, but what do you think about this? And, of course, you've responded. And, um... I'll tell you something that happened today without trivializing the time we have together. And as I went back to the library for which I worked up at St. Leo's, and I talked to the librarians there, and we had this kind of discussion saying, you know, you folks, um, and, you know, and that most folks are good people in the sense of they would never have these thoughts. And when they hear others who espouse these, they're like, uh, that can't be real, not because they don't think it's there. It's because it's not within their ken to be this way, and, and that's meritorious. But that you, they have to understand that that's being kicked around in, in high places. And one of the things we, I spoke to them about, and I don't know if you've ever you know, looked at that um, website, Galton.org, um, an exchange that's also captured in the book by Edwin Black called um, War Against the Weak. When Galton's like, look, if we want to kind of benefit the races, why don't we just have selective breeding, which also obviates marriage. Uh, you know, you know, Ward and June Cleaver are not going to get married unless they can give us good, or they're not going to link, if you will, <laughs> unless they can give us, you know, a superior offspring. Uh, and H.G. Wells basically slapped Golden down and said, you know, the heck with, with selective breeding. Let's, let's kill the hindmost as happens in, you know, nature. And, you know, I, you know, folks don't really believe that he really meant that. Uh, he did. And he's representative of an element that was very, very prevalent at the part, I guess, the early part of the 20th century, kind of went underground. 
uh, and also Rockefeller's part of this with the Population Council, and the whole idea of, uh, you know, uh, mandatory sterilization of those who were seen to be inveterate criminals, blah, blah, blah. That happened in the United States. That died away. Now it's coming back again. Uh, again, I know I've said a lot, but people have to understand, I'm only trying to frame the fact of that that spirit has been with us through the 20th century, and it's, it's coming back in spades right now. Your thoughts on that? It goes back to the 18th century as well. Yeah, it does. I think about uh, the, the 1700s with, uh, with, you know, uh, with the beginning of the so-called Enlightenment, which, of course, you know, we could go on for hours describing how the Enlightenment was just a rediscovery of these old pagan ideas. It's postulated by Plato and Pythagoras and all of these people from the mystery schools. The, the point of it all being that the evolution itself, the theory goes back to this the Hindu belief, uh, of, you know, of, of the progression of, of a soul through various life forms, beginning with insects up till you finally reach that, you know, the, that highest state where uh, you know, union with the so-called gods. And this is the context in which this theory was postulated. And when Darwin and uh, you know, Darwin's grandfather Erasmus and uh, T.H. Huxley and all of those so-called uh, evolutionists around him first began to postulate this theory of natural selection, they had this context in which to justify this uh, racial supremacy doctrine. Mm -hmm. And then they postulated the theory a theory which Darwin himself said, uh, if they couldn't find intermediary species in the fossil record, would be proven false. And, you know, they've been searching for 160 years now for mm -hmm. evidence of uh, Darwin's theory of natural selection. They haven't been able to find a single intermediary uh, species. I mean, I remember studying high school biology, and they talked about a species was the smallest uh, unit of a organism which uh, could reproduce with itself and no one else. And we all know you, you can uh, breed a horse and a donkey and get a mule, but the mule is infertile. And, and this is true of all of these uh, species. And even with uh, genetic ma manipulation, what they call you know GMO foods and everything else, you know, putting pigs' genes in corn. Mm -hmm. These kinds of manipulations don't produce new species. You may alter the characteristic of a species. You may make a tomato, you know, able to, to last longer in the shelf, but you're not creating a new kind of tomato. Um, and we haven't been that successful at creating new species. And uh, if we can't do it with all of this technology, shooting these, uh, you know, uh, DNA through these guns, you know, what they call... Uh, uh, microscopic guns, you know, to try to force them into new DNA uh, patterns in cells. Uh, nature itself hasn't been very successful at demonstrating this uh, theory, and this is one of the fundamental bulwarks of the theory of evolution, that these kinds of mutations do occur. And um, even if you're not going to argue, uh, you know, for uh, six-day creation in uh, the story in Genesis, you, in order for a theory to have validity, it, it, you have to be able to, uh, using the scientific method, demonstrate that it's reproducible. One of the things, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you if you perceive this, sometime in um, the late 80s and early 90s, um, when I speak about the character who was a friend of mine called the Renaissance Landscaper, and we had these discussions uh, when I worked with him, 
Um, he had, he, had, I mean, he was not Christian, and but he was very, very uh, adamant um, at a time in that period that evolution um, had lost all of its teeth and was is, was less almost than an axiom. And um, you know, it, we talked about this, and you know, I said okay, and like I said, I wasn't thinking about the way things are as I do now. Um, and so we saw that kind of fall the way of. Uh, you know, nickel candy. But it has come roaring back as far as I can perceive. I'm long removed from talking to him and being with him. But evolution has suddenly, seemingly to me, and I'm going to ask you to, to speak to this, it gotten legs again as if they were looking for another generation in which they could instill this um, for an end event which we've talked about right, right now, which I believe is depopulation. So, again, I'll ask you, I'll distill it down to its uh, smallest component. One, were you around uh, and sentient enough to perceive that evolution kind of died in the 80s and suddenly seems to have reared its head again? Uh, your your uh, reflections on that? Well, I remember what prompted me to even think about doing this program was a discussion that Gordon and I had about my son. He asked me a question about my oldest boy when he was in high school biology. And, of course, he was struggling with uh, all of these evolutionary ideas. And he came home and he set me down. He says, Dad, you know, they're telling me that, you know, uh, uh, according to this uh, German scientist Ernst Haeckel, you know, that the human embryo, uh, goes through the stages of being a, a, a fish and then a reptile, and and, and you know I, I, you've seen this chart, you know uh, these pictures that this German uh, scientist Haeckel painted, trying to prove just through the drawing itself that the human embryo recapitulated, you know, all of the steps in evolution. Of course, now you know that we've uh, got microscopes and video equipment. And they've gone into the intrauterine into the womb. Uh, they've proven that all of these drawings are ridiculous. The human embryo doesn't go through stages. It, it, you know, at first it has gills like a fish. None of this happens. But this is still being taught in the textbooks. And of course, he brought this to me. And he explained this to me. And I went and I told him, I said, look, these ideas, as they're being capitulated in the schools, are not new ideas, they're very old ideas, going back, you know, to Plato and mm -hmm. others. And I began to explain them, and of course he went to the school and had a discussion with his teacher, and the teacher being a staunch Darwinist and an atheist, and got up in class and said that it was her duty to uh, convince through science that God doesn't exist. Uh, she ended up failing him for the course. And I began to realize at this point that the, that, the, that he was being indoctrinated like a whole generation in these theories, which uh, I had long uh, ago, you know, discarded. Dismissed, yeah. Uh, well, um, let me ask you this too. Um, what, is, what struck me was this: if you could uh, affix to Homo sapiens the, um, I guess. Um, paradigm that uh, only the strong should survive. If you can, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen necessarily in the wild, if you will, but if you can, if you can bring that over to uh, Homo sapiens, then of course it would work that you must by, ne by necessity 
as well said, slay the hindmost. Is that what we're seeing with this embracing of Darwin's theory? Um, once we're, again, we're trying to create an environment in which people will accept the mass extermination of these undesirable people, and this is the whole point behind all of it: is to create a mood and a climate so that when they begin to carry out these procedures, that uh, there's going to be a sympathy for it among the population. A sympathy, and I mean, foolish that... people don't realize that they they themselves are going to be on the target list for the extermination. Well, two good points, and let me ask you this. You use the word sympathy, but that there, but you could um, also use the word support for. Is that right? That's correct. And that they well, don't... A lot of people actually think that this is true. Not only do they have sympathy, they support it. In fact, believe that in the myth of overpopulation. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, statistically, the, uh, we have like 6.6 .6 billion people on the planet, which seems like a lot. But if you go back and you think of a number of insects on the planet, I mean, human uh, population is insignificant compared to the panoply of uh, species that exist on this planet. In fact, they said that if you took all the people in the world and put them in a city uh, you know, the, uh, with the same density as New York City, you could fit all the people in the world in the state of Connecticut. In fact, in this country, most people live... Uh, in large cities that are within 25 miles of the coastline, the vast interior of the country is empty, and this is true of most uh, mm -hmm. uh, of most uh, industrialized nations. The, the most that the people live usually within 25 miles of a coastline, and then in, in the interior of the country, uh, population density is is insignificant. I mean, I think about states like Iowa and Idaho and. With, and, you know, in Montana and Wyoming. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm only laughing because um, there was another example of this that was forwarded by, I think, um, oh, the individual who runs the website I've talked about, Stanford.something or other. I don't know if you've ever come up across that. and uh, You know, it escapes you right now, but, but his point was you could, you could also put them in, Al in, in the province of Alberta, and they all can probably have, like, two square miles for everybody, and it would all be okay. And then you get the naysayers who are like, well, you know, it's on arable land, and, you know, who wants to live there? Um, and, and all this reflects also, and, I, and I'm going to ask you your thoughts on this, and that is to finally reach depopulation, which is what we're talking about uh, with um, Darwinism and, and uh, catastrophism, and that is you have to have problems that are insoluble. You have to now finally reach a point where there is no way to help ourselves out. We're screwed. The only answer is depopulation. Uh, it, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Are, are, are you seeing that that's the way things are configuring themselves as far well, as... Well, they're doing things like, you know, buying oil refineries and closing them down to uh, create... Uh, Shortages in, uh, in in heating oil and and petroleum and gasoline. They're uh, limiting the food supply by yeah, uh, stopping production. Mm -hmm. So that the wheat prices and corn prices. They're taking most of you know I should say a huge portion of the corn crop and they're turning it into into alcohol for no apparent reason, just because they have a requirement now of mixing it in with the, with, with the gasoline. Well, I was All hoping. of these things are designed to create, you know, uh, scarcity when mm -hmm. scarcity does, doesn't exist. There's so much uh, uh, 
productive land in the world, mm -hmm. that if it were all put to growing food, you know, this country used to be able to feed the, you know, most of the planet with its wheat production and corn production. Yeah, but they're selling the fact that there's not enough. And, and, and one of the things I think about, um, and, and you know, I'm not pulling a rank on here because I'm older than dust, <clears throat> but when I went across country uh, on my uh, a college graduation gift to myself. In 1975, we had just gotten past like the oil crisis, if you remember. Oh, that was another one. And um, I was pumping ethanol all through the Midwest. This was not a big deal. And all of a sudden now, it's like ethanol, corn. Oh, it's not enough. You, you want know I, mean? I, I, I look back at those times, and I, and I look now, and we've you know we've not even touched upon you know really the use of uh, ethanol, and I'm like. How did all of a sudden this, this become a big, no, we can't? And that's what I see all through this is that, what about this, no, we can't? What about, the, no, we can't? It's no, 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 no. Um, again, that's my view from over, what, you know, three, four decades. Are you perceiving also that we have to get ourselves into a situation where there is no way out except depop? What about that? Well, that's exactly the conditions they're creating in order to force us into making these hard choices as they see them. But, of course, it's, it's a choice that is planned from the beginning. and is they, they, uh, Have the scarcity so that the people will be forced to make these, uh, these choices. And then, of course, they're putting all kinds of chemicals in the food to sterilize people, to lower sperm counts, and do everything in order to naturally reduce the amount of uh, people <laughs> on the, by simply reducing the number of offspring that people have. And, you, you know, that's the agenda. Now, right. now, if you look at the science there, uh, teaching in order to justify the agenda, then you realize that they need a theory which says this is the way that nature works. Now, uh, ignoring the fact that there's uh, the model, in, uh, especially in the insect kingdom, is not one of, uh, of predator prey, but of cooperation. Okay. That if they, and that if you look in most of the so-called higher, you know, uh, primates, it's cooperation. It's not. It's not competition. Or, we think that this uh, paradigm of competition between species it, you know, is uh, is normative, and, it, in, and it's not normative because, given uh, an abundance, uh, a lot of these uh, so-called uh, theories of natural selection fall, you know, collapse. If I would have asked you if cooperation, what, cooperation among a species was relative to their fit, uh, mortality or fatality rate, I mean, I know that sounds crazy. I mean, it's only it's one death per unit. I understand that, but when you look at the more fragile species, would they be more cooperative to enhance their chances of survival as opposed to more developed? When you get into you know mammals, etc. But are you saying that regardless whether it's a mammal or whether it's an insect, um, that cooperation is more the case than um, a survival of the fittest type of struggle? Is that is that right? Yeah. Well, what made the species survive was the ability of its members to cooperate with each other. By cooperating with each other, uh, that ensures the survival of the whole group. I mean, this is. And this is the one thing, the one chink in the armor of this so-called theory of evolution is that Darwin himself had to recognize that it didn't matter whether individuals uh, 
animal within a species survived. It was that whole group that survived, which determined the uh, the passing on of that of those characteristics under their offspring. That whether or not one individual lives or dies doesn't matter uh, uh, under his theory. It's whether or not the group survives. And this is the problem. Uh, those at the top, uh, you know, they're very selfish, and they ultimately believe that uh, what's important is their own survival, their own preeminence. And yes, they have long-term plans, you know, for for their own group, their own so-called blue blood elite group. But overall, they're less cooperative. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine. We we look at this vast you know, uh, leadership. We see all the uh, protocols that they put in place in order to control us, and we think that you know that you know they're pretty cooperative. But you know, they're like a mafia uh, gang, mm-hmm. fighting and vying for power all the time. Extremely competitive. There's a pecking order among them, and they're always trying to move up and down that pecking order. And they've taken that morality, which is their own psychopathic morality, and then they've tried to uh, enhance that into a broad paradigm of, of science and to use that as a scientific theory to justify their own behavior, their own bloodlust, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so there's no physical evidence for that. There's no intermediary species. The fossil record uh, is inconclusive to the theory. They, they can't show how uh, gene mutations produce the, the, the divergences which would require the creation of new species. They can't show how uh, a single-celled animal can become a multicellular animal. They can't demonstrate any of this. And, uh, and behind the back of it is this whole... Uh, uh, I don't know exactly how to put it, but this whole uh, tapestry demonstrating that there's an intelligent design behind everything, that there's engineering involved in all of this, that the eye works in a certain way based upon physical principles that couldn't have arise, you know, arisen uh, through random chance, that like the flagellum of a, uh, of a paramecium or a bacteria operates like a rotary motor, you know, with each part having to have been... Uh, perfectly designed in order to function, you know, with synchronicity. And how did all of those things develop randomly? And they can't explain any of these things. And any, and and you know, and it's all in the scientific literature uh, uh, about these central problems in evolution. And they discuss these among themselves at all these seminars that they go to. But when it comes to defending these theories to the, uh, those outside the scientific community, then suddenly there's a wall of silence. Oh, so there are no problems. The fossil record clearly demonstrates what, you know, what, we, uh, what we believe. You know, it, it is possible for, uh, for uh, wings and eyes and feathers and all of these things to develop you know, randomly through uh, genetic mutation, even though we've never seen this in nature. Most genetic mutations are detrimental to a species. They're detrimental to an individual. Yet how did all of these accumulate through random chance and suddenly now you have new species with, uh, with uh, perfectly working engineering designed wings and eyes and ears and sensory apparatus and all of these things allegedly through random chance. So... 
it would be as preposterous as walking in uh, and seeing, you know, a, a used car lot with a whole series of different kinds of vehicles, from Volkswagen Beetles to Mercedes-Benz to uh, minivans to trucks, and then postulating a theory that, well, see that small one there? The, uh, these must have developed and, you know, reproduced from the, uh, from the little one. Into Cadillacs. Yes. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, um, I've been looking at my Nissan Sentra for 99, and that, that sucker isn't growing into anything. <laughs> no, uh, I'm, I'm being... Now, even if you accept the, the Descartes' belief that, that living beings are just machines, which there's no real evidence for this theory, but even if you accept his uh, strict materialism... There's such a diversity of, uh, of design in all of these machines, yet a uniformity of purpose throughout all of these species. You know, we, we think of whales and fish. Their, their fins resemble each other, yet they're completely different species, and we, you know, one with gills and one with lungs. Mm -hmm. How did that develop? How did a whale and how did a porpoise and a dolphin end up with fins that resemble... <laughs> Depends of a fish. <laughs> Yet if you look at this as that there's a common designer behind all of these. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go and you look at the, an architect, you know, like Frank Lloyd Wright, and there's a commonality of all of his houses and all of the buildings he designed that were part of his creative vision of, of how he saw, you know, structures. Yet... People look at the panoply of all of the uh, designs in nature and say, well, there is no pattern. There, you know, there is right. no uh, intelligent mind behind any of this. It all developed randomly. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is one of the central philosophical problems with this whole Darwinistic theory is you, you're forced to ignore the evidence of your own eyes and your own senses. You're forced to ignore these patterns, which clearly show. And, you know, as you, as, you know, I think it's Psalm 103 says, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Mm -hmm. and, you, and yet, if you're amoral and psychopathic and you wish to murder everyone around you, and you don't want to adhere to the value of any human life to believe that there's a hand behind the world that you have to answer to at some point. You know, that's it would be entirely inconvenient for you. Um, we're on the uh, bottom of the hour, and we're talking with Ed Halliford. And uh, you folks have heard him here um, sometime before. He's also been in an uh, interview with uh, Gordon Comstock, and, and those files are still available on Gordon's website. Um, Ev, uh, I don't know if this pertains to what we're talking about. I've not got a chance to read it. You did come out with a novel, one. Uh, well, let's just talk about it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you, you were on the precipice of having a publisher. I don't know where that's going, and I, I hope I'm not talking out of class. But uh, can you speak to that and whether or not that has any bearing necessarily on what we're talking about? Could you, uh, would you, would, could, can you, and would you talk uh, to that? Well, I've got a, right now I'm in the process of struggling with the book contract. So apparently, you know, if I can get the contract signed and everything done, I, the book's going to be published maybe in October. This has been a 15-year dream of mine. I 
didn't think it was ever going to happen, you know, because after being turned down by every major publishing house under the sun for for years of attempting to get it published, finally the small publishing houses agreed to do it. And uh, it does relate to uh, this theory that I had about the nature of perception, which is part of uh, this second thing I want to talk about, uh, about evolution, is that evolution, it presupposes that this material world that we live in is actually real. And, you know, uh, the objects that we see and that the, the world that we perceive, that, you know, that there isn't something beneath all of this. It's what this physicist David Bohm called. I don't know if you know about David Bohm. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, believed that, the, that there was an explicate order, uh, which is the world that we see with our eyes and with our senses, the world we can measure. But there was an implicate order that we can't necessarily see with our eyes or measure with our instruments. And that implicate order uh, was more uh, holistic, than, uh, less particular than, uh, than the world of we, uh, which we could see. And he, he argued that part of our problem is that we created lenses, you know, telescope lenses, eyeglass lenses, and lenses tend to focus your attention to a small area. And when we look at a small area, uh, by virtue that we're looking at that small area, we fail to see the panorama, the whole huge picture of things. And this was the theme of, of the book that I wrote about a, uh, about a human life and how in each individual human life we're, uh, we can see by looking into the heart, the experiences, the struggles that we have in that individual life. It gives us a picture of all of the struggles that all of us have. And by looking through uh, the eyes of that character, that person, that we begin to see uh, through the eyes of other people, you know, uh, you know that the panoply, the tapestry, which, you know, we're all like threads woven through it. And, and to me, this was the, the, one of the themes about I wanted to, to, to cover. And this is not Darwinistic, because... In Darwinism, you know, the vast majority of, uh, of individuals die, and death reigns. But in this tapestry, there's no one lost. No one is lost. No life is insignificant. No life is not worthy of praise and of honor. But are you saying that we go through life basically with tunnel vision, and we don't understand the whole breadth of creation? I mean, it, 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 we also don't understand uh, that that our place, the synchronicity, the uh, the serendipity of our, of our lives, about how uh, we encounter each other. I mean, uh, all of us have these uh, odd synchronicities in our lives, where you know we meet people that somehow knew other people in our lives, and we have conversations with them, and then we suddenly realize that. We had a connection with them even long before we met them. Mm -hmm. I've had this happen so many times in my life, and it's every time it happens, it reminds me of the six degrees of separation that they talk about, how yeah. each one of us is somehow connected to every other person in the universe. And uh, Bohm talks about the, this holographic idea of the universe, that the universe is, in fact, a hologram. And a hologram is created by interference patterns of two laser lights. And, you know, they, they interfere, they create ripples on a, uh, on a piece of film. And in a hologram or in a holographic film, 
the entire three-dimensional object is stored, and you can cut it into smaller pieces, and, you, and each smaller piece gives you a smaller miniature of the larger picture. And he says, this is the structure of the universe. This is how everything is interconnected and related to everything. Uh, and this is uh, a sense which is the opposite of evolution. Evolution says that, you know, uh, it's survival of the fittest and most of us are refuse and the inferior, you know, are destroyed by nature. And they don't produce offspring and they don't uh, have any value and they can be slaughtered and murdered. Whereas if we live in a, uh, an implicate universe, as Bohm and, uh, and this neurologist Carl uh, Prebrum says, where everything is interconnected, where the universe is a fluctuating energy field, and we're part of that field. We're interacting with that field, and our whole human life, and our consciousness is merely using these bodies of ours as a means in which to communicate and experience this three-dimensional reality we call the world, this kind of matrix that we all share. Mm -hmm. Then, death itself is merely a part of that tapestry. We're experiencing this as a part of the tapestry. It's not permanent. It's not real in the sense. It's part of this illusion that we experience. It's part of this... And, you know, Christianity in its nature says that, you know, through the, you know, this resurrection of Christ, uh, that he demonstrated that the that what we experience with our senses being trapped in a sense within them it isn't real that ultimately uh, once our consciousness is freed from the body we may not be able to communicate or interact with the, this three dimensional physical world anymore but the consciousness somehow survives the, the death of the body and uh, this is not what Darwinism, with its strict uh, materialism, teaches us, you know, that, you know, most of us are unconscious and uh, most of us are unintelligent and most of us are deserving of death. Well, let me ask you this. When you say the consciousness exists, isn't that another way of saying, and I'm not putting words in your mouth, and you'll tell me if that's not what you're thinking about, but, I mean, to me, when you said that, it necessarily means that consciousness or the soul never gets destroyed uh, God does not destroy the soul no soul is ever destroyed it goes on in an afterlife where, wherever it might go but the physical husk uh, you know may be just that and it's shirked off as Shakespeare would say the mortal coil but am I right in saying that when you talk about consciousness to me what I'm hearing from you is the idea that the soul goes on Never, ever is anything destroyed regarding that. And I think that's scriptural. Um, am I right or wrong in, in getting that from you? Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that uh, whatever we experience in this life through these bodies, and all these bodies that I, that I see, all these bodies ultimately are, are constructions out of this fabric of space and time mm -hmm. uh, so that we can move and have our being in them. In a way... You know, we incarnate, not in the same way as the Creator, according to the Christian, they incarnated and became Christ, but we incarnate, we enter into this physical world. We build from the world bodies for ourselves, out of the material 
I mean, literally, this is what happens. Anyway, we start with a single cell, and then through we multiply uh, to more cells and more cells, and we take in food, and then we break down that food, and then from that food we build more cells and more cells, so there are billions of cells in a human body. And then those cells begin to die and uh, go into dysfunction, disharmony, and eventually the body ceases to function. This is the biological process. Plants do it. Uh, they take. They start with a single cell and a seed, and they multiply, and then they become a plant, and they draw nourishment and nutrients and elements from the soil, and then they build them. Uh, all of that structure we see from those elements. This is the creative process of all of life. And if you go back and you look at a plant cell or an animal cell, they have the same structure, the same DNA, the same programming, the same uh, methodology by which they reproduce themselves. And we have yet to find a, a, a plausible scientific explanation for how this could have developed spontaneously. Eb, I'm going to ask you something, and you know, we're not going to cover all the ground, but we, we wondered, um, as, I, as I often do with guests, I mean, do you think we're going to cover this in an hour? And I'm going to tell you this, I'm not greasing you. There are some shows where you talk to folks, and the minutes just go by like hours, and it's like, we're never going to get through this. And now I'm looking at us, and we're going to be on like three quarters of an hour. And I don't even know if you got into the good stuff yet, so I'm just going to alert uh, listeners and yourself that we might have to pick this up in another time as well. Having said that, and being very sincere about that, I'm going to ask you something, because, I mean, I'm just going to do it, um, and I think you'll understand why. And um, I don't know what this says, whether it's hereditary, I don't know. But, you know, Ev, um, there's a song by Bonnie Raitt. Uh, in which he says, life gets awful precious when there's less of it to waste. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like 57, it's not a big deal. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this, I mean, I'm going to ask you your take on, on what this is about. And it may be a little too melancholy and a little bit too syrupy. But, you know, I, I, I have just become more aware of all life forms. To the point where, like, when a spider comes to the house, I'm like, dude, I'm not going to kill you. Will you please leave? And I'm not, you know, I'm not getting, like, you know, Hindu or anything like that. My point is, is that, do you believe in Homo sapiens, if you're anywhere, I mean, whether you're Christian or not, that there comes an awareness of the cycles of life where because you become much more respective of all life forms. I mean, not that they're elevated to the point of a human being. All right, and I'm like, I'm hoping I'm not getting like, you know, too crazy with you, but I'm just looking at things and saying, I mean, I'm more aware of like hawks and doves and all this other stuff that's going on, and I just want to like, you know, I want let everybody to do what they're going to do. I don't want to be the person who interrupts anything. Uh, I know this sounds kind of crazy, and it's probably not really a great Western idea, but does that? I mean, do you you understand where I'm coming from? I mean, I'm I now just don't want to. I don't know. And anything, which, however small or nasty it is, I just want life to go on. I mean, does that make any sense to you? And, I, and I'm sorry if, if I've thrown you a curveball, but I have no, to ask you. Go ahead, bro. Tell me. Each of us in our gut knows that there's something seriously amiss in the universe. We get this sense, even from even those that people that you think are completely asleep, have 
kept in their gut this feeling that death isn't a natural thing. That there's something really crazy about taking a human body and burying it in a casket in the ground, you know? Yeah. That there's something inherently amiss about what's going on in the world. That, uh, that why do cells die? Why does, do life forms die? Why do lions kill zebras? Why is, you know, St. Paul in his epistle to the Romans said that the whole uh, universe was in the pain right. of, uh, of, 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 you know, of childbirth, waiting yes. this period of being tied to corruption to be over with. And, you know, and Isaiah said mm. something about the lion laying down with the lamb, mm -hmm. the little boy leading them, and no, no longer would there be death in the world. And we all sense... Uh, yes. I shouldn't say we all, because I think the psychopaths no. that were running the world are death worshippers. They relish in death and destruction. But the normal people, and I, I use that term very loosely that we meet, the, the, the decent people, you know, who would go, find it hard to imagine a serial killer or anything like these things, they have a sense in which that they understand that life is precious, it should be preserved, that animals are precious, that they, as much as possible, they should be preserved. And this is an impulse that I think comes from, from that whole creative uh, center of ourselves, that we being uh, creative beings. And I think that, the, that creativity has to be beaten out of us. I remember, you know, this whole Protestant ethic where I was growing up, where my mother and father were basically trying to beat the creative impulse out of me. <laughs> they, were, they were telling me, you know, you're, you're daydreaming, which I did a lot as a child. I would sit around and daydream, and I would think of stories and fantasize about, you know, things, and my mother would come and say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm daydreaming. She says, Boy, there's something wrong with you. you. There's something wrong with you. You should be working. You know, that's, you know that same Paul, uh, take it out of context statement, you know, he who doesn't work shall not eat. This work ethic, you know, that Protestant work ethic that I was raised with, that, that children by nature, before it's beaten out of them, are creative beings, filled with imagination and, uh, and a lust for life. And we have to be put in the government schools, sent through the government mind control program in order to beat that out of us so that we're like automatons asleep, well, you know, little robots like out of uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, you know, yeah. <laughs> walking in, in goose step with each other. Well, you know, on one hand, I have to say, um, you know, I know when, when a development is made, and we've seen this all through our lifetime. And, of course, I saw this very much in Jersey. And then when I moved to Florida, unfortunately, uh, you know, it happened here, too. And there's a displacement of the wildlife and such. And I'm not okay with that. And yet, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm conflicted because it's like, well, all right, then what do we do? And I also have a, a great uh, suspicion about radical environmentalists. But the point is, is that... Um, I guess maybe as I get older, and I'm going to really get weird here, and say for, for one of the last times I ever listened to Alex Jones, I don't know what got into him, and he talked about uh, reverence for life of anything to the point where you didn't even want to stomp out a spider. 
and and yet you know that stayed with me and and as much as I don't want anything to do with him when he in that one moment when he just spoke like that um I've always held on to it and now I understand it like I said you know I don't know if it's a product of advanced age when I know that you know my days are numbered of course they've always been but that I just don't want to interrupt anything and I'm not trying to get like Hindu or you know far eastern about anything but I don't know. I mean, there's a preciousness of life, and in a way you know that the whole cycle will continue and it has its casualties, including us. And, um, you know, I, I, I might be going far afield with here, but I, I kind of don't think so, and I think you'll understand that. And that is now, at, at this late stage, and I think we're on the precipice of something very catastrophic, um, you know, Instead of instead of snuffing the, the the spider with raid, I'm like trying to get it in a napkin and bring it inside. <laughs> and I'm you know, and I mean that's me, man. I understand that, but I I don't know. I mean, can you explain that to me? I mean, are, should you be able to? I mean, is this something that you've hit upon? Um, and like I said, you know, good old Viz, you know, can get crazy on you in any second. Um, but but would you like address that at all? I mean, I think you have been, but. Um, you know, it might get in like soft in a melon, or it might. You know, it might. Well, I, I told you the story about my father. You remember? Yes. Oh boy. Big yes. Tough guy from Texas. That, that, uh, the only time I saw him cry, except after my mother's death, was when he killed the dog, and he went into the room and cried. And my mother wouldn't let me go inside because he says, "Please don't go in there. You're going to cry because mm -hmm. he killed the dog." That even he and his gut had this sense that, of the sacredness of life. And all decent people, I think, have that sense. But and, and uh, that's—I I don't want to kill anything. I don't want to be responsible. I've been a vegan for ten years now. I mean, there's no—you know—you know, people laugh at me sometimes and say, "How could you not eat meat?" But I said, you know, at least I know some animal isn't dying. So in order to give me life, I mean, it was the hardest thing. I mean, I was a big meat eater, and I loved my steak, and I loved my, uh, you know, my, you know, barbecue and Texas barbecue and everything else I grew up with, and it was hard to give up all of that. But I think in, in these last catastrophic days that we're living in, right on the precipice of something dark, of entering a whole new dark ages in a way, in which those feudal forces that you know have, oh, that were you know that had allowed us out of our cages for a while, want to put us back in the cages. I, I, I think that those of us that still have the light and still have the desire to uh, cherish life and to turn away from death, that we should be celebrating life. Um, we're not going to get into a lot of the other stuff which you laid out. And I'm going to ask you at this point, you know, with a gun to your head and your back against the wall, um, would you come back on uh, also to talk about the things that we've not spoken about and can't get into uh, at, at this late hour, which is, you know, the uh, the doctrine also of uh, what would you call it, uniform, uniform, <laughs> uniformitarian. Yeah, that's too long a word for me, bro. Uh, look, I can say one quick sentence to give people a you know kind of foretaste of what what is going to come. Okay. There are two theories of history. Uh, one is uh, catastrophism, the belief that we're going through a series of catastrophes, that we have the great flood, the deluge, and then life uh, 
starts over again on the planet. And in catastrophism, you can have an advanced civilization, and that civilization be destroyed by catastrophe, much like these theories about the dinosaurs being destroyed. And then civilization starts over again. And that was the prevalent theory before uh, this man named Charles Lyell postulated this theory of uniformity, uh, uniformitarianism, he called it, that history was not, in fact, a series of catastrophes, but was a uniform progression going all the way back into time. And, of course, there's no way for us to know. It's one of the central problems of philosophy, what they call inductive reasoning, a belief that uh, the past and the present and the future are all the same. We can't prove this no more than you can prove that the velocity of light, which we now measure at 186,000 miles per second, has always been 186,000 miles per second. All we can say with any degree of certainty is that the universe and the laws in the universe have been constant only for as long as we've been able to perceive them. We can't say anything about the ancient past or the future. We don't know that when we get up in the morning, that the, you know, that the Earth is going to rotate at the same speed. We don't know any of this with certainty. And this was one of the central problems of philosophy, what they call inductive reasoning. Taking an event from the past, or an experience from the past, and then you know, projecting into the future and saying we could make predictions from that. We can't, you know, no one knows the future, so to speak, and I think we know even know less about the past. You know, how many times have you had an experience in your life of a series of events and you thought you understood what was happening, but now that you've had sufficient distance and more information, you've come to realize that your conclusions about those past events were completely mistaken. And this is the problem. This is the problem with the whole scientific theory. It's, all, it's based upon our experience now. now. And we take our experience now and we either project it into the past or we project it into the future and we try to make predictions from it. All right. Now, let me ask you this uh, because, uh, and again, I don't mean to pin you down or anything, but we go back and forth to this thing about global warming, and I'm not saying that it's not happening. <laughs> the question whether it is uh, induced or exacerbated by, you know, man's presence on this planet, or whether it's, you know, it's the cycle this time around. Um, myopic uh, vision can, as you would say, I guess, abet, um, I would say, nefarious or knee-jerk reactions to what's going on instead of standing back and saying, look, let's look at the whole scope of things and whether this has come around again. Would, would I be right? I mean, this is what I think you're saying, and that is let's stand back and take a look at the whole uh, spectrum across so many, you know, as much data as we have. And uh, right now, I think, you know, global warming, though I don't doubt it's happening, is this natural or is this something we've, you know... You know, it's funny, the same scientists that were predicting global warming are, are predicting it now. 30 years ago, we're, we're predicting global cooling. So they've changed their opinions, their minds. But ultimately, if you stand back again, behind all of this is this whole idea we talked about earlier of scarcity, that we, you know, resources are running out. Man is uh, putting such a strain on the planet that we have to reduce population. It's the same yes. agenda behind right. all of it. Uh, so, uh, fact, go ahead, I'm sorry. Fact, carbon dioxide, which is a, the life gas, 
the gas which gives plants their life, which plants produce the oxygen, that whole cycle, that uh, symbiosis between us and the plant kingdom is driven primarily by carbon dioxide. So if ultimately you uh, work to cut down carbon dioxide emissions, you're going to reduce the uh, fruitfulness of plants, you're going to re and you're going to kill the planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's absurd. I mean, it's just completely absurd because we don't know uh, what the optimum level of carbon dioxide is. All of this is based upon you know, uh, theories about, you know, the relationship between, you know, carbon dioxide and temperature, which have uh, not been conclusively proven. And it's based upon, you know, this uh, framework, as I said, of eugenics, which stands back behind all of it. Well, um, well, well let me ask you this. I mean, I, I've asked you, I've asked other guests this. Uh, you not necessarily have to feel this question. Um, because you didn't know this was going to be asked, and you don't have to have an opinion on it uh, cold. Uh, but I tell you what, you know, I stopped the show for a while. I came back because I think uh, 2008 is a very critical year. That's my take, not yours. But let me ask you this. Um, from a Christian perspective, uh, from just an observation perspective, one or both together, um, what is your take about what we might be on? And I know this is a leading question. Uh, what we might be on the precipice of? Are we looking at something, um, shall I say, revelatory as in revelations? Well, I think that there are people that want to bring about this. Uh, they, they want to make uh, the book of Revelation happen in this time. It wouldn't be the first time that this has happened. I mean, there was a theory in uh, a group of people called Montanists in the 200s that believed that Christ was coming back and set out to create a whole series of events. They provoked the Roman Empire into a mass persecution of Christians in order to justify, you know, that Christ was coming back to force his hand. Mm -hmm. uh, in the year 1000, you know, at the end of the so-called first millennium, mm -hmm. uh, there was a whole group of people that were... Uh, looking to the heavens and signs for signs and wonders that Christ was coming back. The year 2000, the same thing. All of these people talking about the Mayan calendar and, you know, December 21st, 2012. We may, in fact, be at the end of things, uh, but human experience has, uh, has shown me that in every... Uh, successive generation there are people that want to somehow make this happen they're anxious for it to happen and in a kind of sick and perverse way there are Christians who want to see Armageddon and want to see mass mm -hmm. murder and mass destruction mm -hmm. in order to bring about you know the second coming of Christ and uh, I don't want to see this happen because uh, in the end it may all be you know wish fulfillment may be you know a desire of certain people to uh, produce these effects, thinking Christ will come back. And they'll be so sorely disappointed as those in 1000 were, as the Montanists were, and all of these people that tried to you know, force you know, God's uh, time clock, so to speak. But do you believe he's going to come back again? Yes, I do. And there has... It's time now. I mean, we may live to see it. I, <laughs> I'm certainly preparing myself for that. <laughs> okay. All right. 
we've been talking with Ed Halliford, and uh, Ed, uh, if we've not done justice to all that you laid out, um, I'm going to ask you, and of course, if I do this on air, you have to say yes, because <laughs> what else you can say? But um, can we do kind of like a part two to this? Uh, in the, in yeah, anytime you want. I'll be glad to sit down and have a chat with you about it. I can get into uh, there is a perception and mm-hmm. you know what the nature is of, of the scientific paradigm, all of the other things that we, we weren't able to talk about tonight. Yeah, you know, and that's it. I mean, when I looked at what you had to lay out, you know, you know, for however long I've done this and however I am you know, proficient or not about it. When you look at what people lay out as far as what they want to talk to, you, you can see that there are some topics that are, like, gigantic. <laughs> like, well, I don't know if we're going to be able to cover this in an hour. Uh, if you could do that, if you were constrained to that. Uh, obviously, um, you know, with the format of this show and, you know, the time frame, it is about as free flow as you can get. So, you know, we have that opportunity to be able to do that. And um, and that's why I said to you, you know, before we came on, it's like, look, you know, if, if don't squeeze all the good stuff into an hour. We can't get that done. You know, and, I, and again, like I said, I cannot be presumptive or generous with somebody else's time, you know, because the good thing about talking to someone like yourself is that, like, you're a real person with a family and children and constraints, and that's something that listeners, of course, are all part of. And, uh, and they can resonate with. So uh, they're okay, you know, with giving the guests the slack is that like, well, if that were, if that were I, you know, I'd be in the same situation. So uh, if you don't mind, right. well, go ahead, bro. So I was going to say one final sentence is we should all desire to be self-educated. Don't accept what people tell you. Question everything. Question everything. That's uh, what I, told, I try to tell my children in school. Don't accept everything the teachers are saying. Have the openness and the capacity to question what you're being told. Think about it. Reflect upon it. And that's you know that's my, my point of uh, advice for everyone. Um, you know what? You're absolutely right. And sadly, just the opposite is true. The the uh, craft, if you would, which should be. Uh, I guess innate to all of us is not, and that is critical analysis. You don't have to be flying in the face of authority. You don't have to be a rebel right from the outset. There's nothing wrong in saying why, how come, and let's talk about this. However, I think that skill, the critical uh, analytical skills, have been lost, and I would say deliberately so. How do you feel about that? Oh, they—they don't want critical thinkers in, 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 no. Um, no. in, in the new feudal world in which we're living in. They want dumbed-down slaves that uh, basically will do what they're told. And uh, unfortunately, I think that you know I'm not going to survive if we go into this neo-feudalism. <laughs> I don't have the self-discipline to to become a willing and uh, you know uh, <laughs> slave. So you don't want to get behind the plow, huh? <laughs> okay. But, I mean, yeah, and, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm pretty sure you are. But, I mean, that that uh, book, um, which was made into a movie, which I thought they did well, uh, Harrison Bergeron. Yeah. Uh, please, uh, ch- children, don't be extraordinary. <laughs> we, we don't want extraordinary individuals. We want, you know, trainees to work at China Mart for the rest of their lives. 
Be satisfied with what you're doing on the market. That's my, my my biggest complaint is that I have one of these kind of jobs which is dull, mundane, and routine, like most of us have. Because on the feudal plantation, uh, uh, dull routine is is the norm. So it's uh, it, it's it, you know it's got to. And the, the last thing you want to do is stick your head up. It's like that old Japanese proverb, you know the uh, the. Uh, the higher nail is the first to get the hammer. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> Look, it is a um, it is a late Friday night, uh, and here I am in the Bells of Florida, and we're talking to uh, Ev Halliford in my my long lost wishful uh, neighborhood of uh, the Greater New York City area, which um, I don't know if you can understand this, but I'll end on this. You know, people thinking I'm cracking up. Do you remember um, Citizen Kane? Yeah, I remember the movie. Do you remember that he always uh, uh, thought back to uh, the sleigh and Rosebud? Yeah, that was taken away from him as a child. Yeah. But can you can you appreciate, and you don't have to, but for the sake of the show, you should say yes, <laughs> that, you know, I'm down here and my thoughts oftentimes when I can't sleep go up to snapshots of my uh, childhood up in that area. And, uh, I mean, can you understand that? I mean, I just, sometimes you have to go backwards, you know what I mean? And uh, that's what I find myself doing, I think more so now than ever before. And I think that's what I was talking to you about, that, you know, it doesn't have to be monumental moments. I guess Thornton Wilder also touched upon this in uh, our town. And that's like, just take me back to, you know, just a, a regular day, just to take a look at the way things were. Uh, to get I a miss those days when I was a okay, child. Okay, there you go. Uh, just for well, a comfort zone, you know what I mean? I missed them. I missed nickel candy bars and walking yep. down to the five and dime. Yep. A cool glass of iced tea on a hot summer day. Yep. I miss all of these things. I, you know, a friend of mine kept telling me, uh, are you happier now that you are more awake and you realize what the, how the world really works? And I said, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's a kind of bittersweet happiness in a way. <laughs> yes, I'm happy. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going oh. down the you know, the the the, the shoot to the slaughterhouse. I'm unknowingly, you understand? I'm sorry for for coughing, but you you just cracked me up. <laughs> so yeah, um, that you know. But I but uh, oh, but you know, there's a certain That's amount great. of sadness realizing that you know I've lost that I uh, that naivety, that idealism that I had when I was a young child. Yep. Um, yeah. All right. So I, I guess I'm going to take that as an affirmation of the way I feel down here. But that's how I fill my night sometimes, uh, just to uh, put myself to sleep. And I don't think that's so bad. I mean, I just think that, you know, I was I was also um, alive and around for that particular time, which probably I didn't realize as being special in, because most human beings, obviously, in the time they're at, and even as we speak now, don't realize that there's a speciality to the time that you're, you know, there. I mean, it's just, there's something good about everything. But looking back, obviously, to those days of nickel candy, you know, and knee highs, and, uh, you know, all the uh, teeth rotting stuff we ate, <laughs> you know, for two cents was like the best thing in the entire world. I and remember Coca-Cola's for a <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Yes. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah, and the penny candy with, the, like, the, the 
uh, seriously sweet banana things. That, oh, all right. I mean, I know it's, but you know, that world seems to have been washed away now with with uh, with, with AIDS and 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 robberies and and police beatings and you know. If you could walk into what you call them candy stores, you, you you're still hip with that, right? Even though I'm 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 a little heady in the game. You remember candy stores? I mean, they, you know, they call them, you know, whatever. Now they're stationary stores, anyway. But you can go in there with 50 cents and come out with, like, the highest caloric food ever in the entire world. You know, and it was the greatest thing. It was like, wow. That's cotton candy, that's pure <laughs> sugar. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is, like, so great. Uh, and, of course, I have to admit, too, come summertime, come baseball time, uh, and, of course, that meant school vacation and all that other stuff. I mean... <laughs> the menu that we afforded ourselves was absolutely like you know heinous to our bodies, but somehow they forgave us. <laughs> you know? I know, and my kids hate me for it now because <laughs> I I, I, I'm going no, can no. I know. If my mother gave me a dollar, God knows I could have packed about twenty thousand calories into whatever I could get. Oh, no candy, daddy, daddy, I want candy, candy, no candy. I mean, it's, uh, it's funny, but it, it's funny, but true. But you know, Ev, I think also, because we, we, we packed all that stuff into our bodies, but we played, like, you know, I think I'm a direct product of playing stickball, streetball, Little League, everything, because I couldn't sit down. So I just played, and I, you know, like, got the contract for whatever it meant. But my point is, is, like, that fueled me into being just, you know, the athlete I could be. And if I didn't have all that junk, you know, I probably, you know, would have been a mass murderer. <laughs> well, I played Little League ball, too, so I mean, one of the things that kids did. Uh, okay, look, let's pick up with part two. And, um, yeah, there are serious things to talk about, and that is necessary front and center. Um, but on this uh, late Friday night, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, if you well, don't mind... I said had to resonate with people because, you know, oh, it, we have to understand that, uh, that, that, that they're jamming this science down our throats and it is a means to get, to, to, to get us to basically give in so that they can kill us all. Let's call it what it is, and I mean that is you know something that all people will be you know putting their hands to their open mouth and going, oh no, that can't be. But it is definitely the situation. Now we've made light and we've gotten a little humorous toward the end, and that's okay. But we can't lose sight of the fact, honestly, that there are nefarious forces at you know at hand, and people have to decide how they're going to come down, whether you're Christian or not. Um, they're going to choices to be made, and it's a serious situation. Um, <clears throat> still, you have to live your life, and you have to extract from it, you know, whatever beauty you can. To me, it's getting easier and easier, and that's why I said back to you. You know, when I look at life forms, all of them, it's like, you know, can't we all get along? I was not that way when I was 20 or 30 or 40. Something definitely has happened, and that's probably because, you know, the life cycle has knocked on my head saying, you know, you never know when you're going to be called, and that's okay. Uh, I'd rather go out cooperating and fighting. You know, they, they, they talk about, oh, I'm going to go down fighting. I think more I would better go down cooperating now in this stage of my life than go down fighting. And you know I'm what? I'm talking about cooperating with each other, not cooperating with our enemies. But, but you know, but if, you know, here's the other thing I, I, I do battle with, you know, excuse the pun, with 
you know, I don't know, Christians or those who call them such. And that is, you know, I'm, I'm looking in the day of days of grace since Christ has come and died and been resurrected. And it's like, you got to put the sword down. I mean, that's hard for me to do because um, I'm just by nature nasty and, you know, pugnacious. But um, that's not the way of Christ. And that's what we're facing now. And uh, the way is not to battle, but, you know, obviously to put on the full armor of Christ and uh, turn people, if we could, to a saving well, knowledge. We're called to open people's eyes. Yes. How it there seems to be. Shake them, rouse them from asleep. And, you know, people sometimes get angry when you shake them and rouse them from sleep. So you have to be expecting that. And yeah, and I would say that is going to be the case from this point on, but, you know, for what better purpose would you want to do that and take the yeah, heat? Yeah, but uh, I imagine myself that there's a fire in the house and the person is a sound sleeper and you're shaking and saying, get out of the house, it's on fire. This is, so they may be angry with you, uh, but once they're awake and realize the danger yeah. that they're facing, they'll, they'll be grateful that you've woken them up, so... This um, is how I comfort myself through all, through all the shouting and the torment that they're giving me while I'm trying to wake them up. Well, I mean, that's an excellent example. <clears throat> but, but that also, um, I think, interjects into the, uh, the uh, schema is that they must understand that the house is definitely on fire. I think that will become more apparent as time goes on. If it isn't, there's not much you can do. I think we've been told that that might also be the case. But for those who can smell the smoke and see the fire, um, I think, uh, you know, that there'll be a dispensation for them. And also, um, shall I say, an added incentive to uh, understand that uh, the time is short. I know that's kind of vague, but um, I think we're upon that. I think 2008 and 2009 are going to be very pivotal. I agree pivotal. with you. I think that we're right at the cusp. Yeah. The movers and shakers want to make their move now. So that's why you know, I'm so happy going that the book of mine is going to be published. But I told Victoria, my wife, I said, you know, it would be my luck the way things have been going. <laughs> book's going to come out in October, and we're in martial law. That's <laughs> it. Sorry. It's coming out. And, and, and what is the title of that again? Visionary. All right. And All about uh, seeing. Okay. Uh, it, it's a novel. It's supposedly fiction. But can I assume... I mean, you sent it to me. I've not yet read it. I mean, can we assume that it's futuristic and not necessarily so fictional? Is that, would that be right? Yeah. It's a, basically, it was a, a fictional retelling of our experiences coming from Texas to New York. So it's a kind of personal travelogue of what happened to us, uh, yeah. of course, fictionalized. Uh, in the human imagination and um, those universal themes of, you know, small town life coming back to the city and what happens to you when you uh, when you don't know anything about the way a big city works and how uh, you're basically eaten alive. <laughs> you're the weak prey in a predator society, so... And uh, I spun a tale, you know... Uh, you know, a kind of parable about what happens and uh, how in the end uh, we're, we're given a choice. Do you succumb to the dark side or do you fight it? A little bit of conspiracy tossed in and a, and a, and a lot of self-reflection for those first few years we were in New York. And that's my um, kind of parable. And, uh, you know, and you know, I hope it resonates with people. I mean, uh, certainly this 
uh, publisher, it resonated with him, so I hope hopefully it will resonate with more people. And, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I have no great ambitions of becoming a you know world famous writer, but I would like uh, you know some other people to share you know my experience. Well, the more accurate and true your description, probably the less you're going to be a mass consumption uh, <laughs> writer. Because uh, truth uh, somehow gets lost when you get involved with the money. And uh, as we've always said on the show, money changes everything. But still and all, um, that doesn't mean that the craft uh, that you've taken and the work that you've done uh, doesn't have value. And we'll be looking forward to that. And, of course, probably we'll talk before that does hit whatever it does hit and hopefully it'll hit before Christmas because that's always a good time for that to happen uh, with your publisher um, but Ed Halliford uh, thanks for being with us and uh, uh, if we can do a part two uh, in the near future would that be okay with you? That's perfect just you know you uh, name the day and I'll be glad to sit down and talk about the other stuff yeah i tell you what it's good to talk to you again I'm glad you were with Gordon and uh, you know uh, people email me too uh, you know to this day that, um, you know, you've resonated with them, and that's a, a pretty good sign. And I think we've had, you know, pretty good people that listen uh, to the show. And uh, Well, that's what Gordon told me, that uh, the last program I did with him, that, that people um, sent him very positive emails about it. And you know, I try to be real. I try to be open about uh, and honest with people, yeah. and I hope that comes through. I mean, I'm not uh, trying to put on the ears a pretense about being the smartest or the, the most articulate uh too many of uh, uh, polished people out there that you know uh, can talk a good stick, uh, you know. But uh, right. But you don't. You know the thing is, you don't have to give them. You know, you don't have to be a goody two shoes and give them good news. What they're asking for, and this is where I'm going for. You know, to and, and and you know that's what I'm saying. And that is, they want reality. If you're real, that's what they want because that's all. That all of us what, what we want. And the listeners, uh, you know, do that all the time. And out of those listeners, some of them like yourself. You know, have come to the fore and said, "Okay, look, you know, let me add this to the pot," and and people are receptive. They don't necessarily need good news. They don't necessarily need bad news. They just want the way it is. And uh, and if that is hard for them to take, you know, then you know, go somewhere else. Um, and that's my words, not yours. But that's what you've done, and that seems to be the way people react to it. Um, and if they think and they respond, and if they agree or not, the, the thinking and the responding. Is really what we want. Better if they don't agree. That's, I mean, uh, well, yeah, because that gets them to think about it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, honestly, that that's true. And uh, you know, lately with the way things have been going, uh, you know, that's that's the discussion has been. It's like, why can't we just talk about this? Why do we have to censor? But that's okay. Anyway, be that as it may, um, y you know, your your return is very welcome, uh, and uh, your uh, appearance on uh, Gordon Comstock show was well received um, and when you came on with us that first time for obvious reasons with your recollections of, of your dad um, there was a lot of guys that got down you know and weepy about it and, and only because it's real and that's good and we're going to continue to do that um, you know we're not Oprah you know we're guys we cry it's okay <laughs> right hey listen <laughs> what <laughs> my wife laughs about it sometimes because she tells me um you know, you're just as uh, romantic as I am. You try to hide the fact you have the same impulses that I do, because I kind of tease a little bit about romantic comedy movies. <laughs> and she's right. I think many, in many ways, they're far more romantic than women, far less practical about relationships. So 
yep. another topic for another night. But uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'll stay convicted of that. It's true. Hey, Ev, listen, thanks for being with us, and uh, yeah. we'll work something out on the sidelines um, uh, for a part two. We can get back into the nitty-gritty. But thanks for coming on. Uh, sorry we couldn't do it last week, but, you know, we did it now. And uh, with all that's taking place, you know, it's always appropriate and never too late. So thanks for being with us, and we'll talk soon, okay? Okay. Take care. Good night, brother.